Okay, guys, we're in lesson three today. We're right along chapter two of First Peter, and we're going to talk about the new birth. Still, most of the letter is about the new birth, about the new life that you and I have in Jesus Christ, and certain things that we can see from it. Today, we're going to talk about growth, about growing as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point I want you to see. A lot of us, when we talk about salvation, a lot of our presentations, I think, are lacking, especially in our culture today, because a lot of the presentations that we use today were reflective of a culture maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago when everybody around us had a God consciousness. They may not have been a Christian, but the culture reflected a God consciousness. They, they had an understanding of the Bible. They had an understanding of church or things like that. That is no longer true. Not in the least bit. And the reality is is that we live in a culture now where our presentations aren't the same way because we have a, we're in a culture, it's almost like a missionary culture. When you, as a missionary going somewhere to people who have never heard of Jesus, who never heard of God, and you say, well, that's possible? All the way, yes, you better believe it. It is possible. It is completely possible. Where they don't have any understanding of God or the Bible. That is our culture today. And like I shared with you before, all you have to do, I mean, you can, you can, you can say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with those stats. Well, you need to. The number of Christians in this country are decreasing. And the number of, actually, I just read recently, the cults, they're increasing. And the secularists, they're increasing. People who profess to be believers are decreasing. In fact, 60 to 70 percent of those who are from, I would say, from 18 to 40, don't go to church. That means most of the people who go to church are older than 40. What's eventually going to happen to them? Yeah, they're going to die. So what will happen to the number of people going to churches? Yeah, decreasing, isn't it? Because we're not reaching the 18 to 40-year-olds. But just this week, someone gave me this. They, they're on uh, Facebook or MySpace, one of those things. I'm not on it. Somebody, somebody was. And I have a friend who's not a believer who posted this on their page. I want you to listen to what he said. Now, before you get angry with him, what I read here is what most unchristians feel. I personally always had an interest in God, but all these churches suck. How come none of these churches are real? I wish there was a revolutionary church that I could go to and find God. A church where I'm not judged for my past or the way I live. You might say, well, I have a hard time with that. That guy's got a problem. No. That guy's really expressing what's our problem. That we can't accept people for where they're at. And really, God calls us to something else. In fact, today we're going to talk about spiritual growth. And what, how I got off on this topic is, is when we talk about our presentation of the gospel today, we talk about it in terms of going to heaven. What do you, when you die, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Well, it's a whole lot more than that because a commitment to Jesus Christ is a life. It's a commitment to his lordship. It's a commitment to follow him in every area of my life because he's God and I recognize that. And by faith, I've accepted his forgiveness and now I'm going to have a relationship and I'm going to do what he wants me to do. Not just coast and be the same way I was 20 years ago, but grow in my walk with God. Grow. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So he's going to be pretty hard-hitting here because he's addressing, I'm going to be honest with you, what he's about to talk about is not addressed to unbelievers. 
What he is talking about here from the very get-go, verse 1, he is addressing people who call on the name of Jesus Christ, believers. And it's pretty hard-hitting. And we'll start off there. So look with me. We're going to look at the first three verses, first of all. And notice what he says. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So the first thing we're going to talk about is being nourished by the word of God. But there's a couple of things I want you to see here. First of all, he's going to give an admonition in verse 1. And there's a basis for the admonition. We find that in the word, therefore. Therefore is reflecting back on something he just talked about. And so he's going to refer back to the call to God's standard of holiness. So if you think back, if you want to, you can write down right next to that, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So he's reflecting back on that standard of holiness. You and I live with a standard of holiness that's been imposed upon us by God, if you have trusted in him. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to live differently. But I've already shared with you, the sad thing about the church today is, is we don't live any different than the people who live in a culture, except that we go to church. And, 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 and you might say, well, I, I'm not doing the stuff they're doing. Well, let's take a look at what he's telling us that we need to stop. So let's look at that. Because we're called to be holy, we must rid ourselves of sinful attitudes and speech. And so let's kind of go through these. Look with me at verse 1. He says, laying aside all malice. Now, who can tell me what a definition of malice is? Looking to harm people or an attitude of harming folks. Okay, that's good, Bruce. Anybody else? What's malice? Hear what Bruce said? It's looking to harm people, an attitude that's an attitude of hatred towards people. What, what, what's malice? Okay, violence, okay, it can be expressed in violence, but it's a violent attitude. Okay, it can be. All right. Yeah, Murad. Yes, lying with malice. So it's, it's really an attitude of anger, and really you have a problem with the other person. Yes, that's right. Did you hear what Marat said? That's a good definition there. Where I am doing, I'm, I'm getting at you through my kind deeds. Malice is the attitude of getting at you. Now, he's saying here that all of us need to lay aside our malice. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Before you say, I don't have that problem, you need to look beneath the surface. Because the fact of the matter is, is we all have that problem. You say, I don't have that problem. Well, if I were to follow you around during the day, I'm sure that there would be someone that you got an attitude towards. Or a group of people that you have an attitude towards, that you're wishing harm to. Maybe it's because of their nationality. Maybe it's because of their skin color. Maybe it's because of their social economic status. You are wishing some sort of harm to and, 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 and so every one of us here, if we were to really look at ourselves and say, because what you're saying is if you don't have malice, is you're saying that you are totally accepting of everybody there is, and you don't have a problem towards anyone. So can anybody say that here? Good. Because the reality is, you can't. You can't. I mean, all you have to do is just follow people around, and you will watch how they are towards others. So here's what he's saying. Because of God's standard of holiness, I'm to be holy. See, here's the thing. When we talk about holiness and I'm to be holy, that sounds really good, but what does that mean? Well, I think I'm holy. 
Well, Peter here is going one step further and saying, because of God's standard of holiness, here's what you need to do. And the first thing is, is you need to lay aside malice, your attitudes towards people. Period. Here's the other thing he says. Notice with me the verse. All deceit. I've mentioned this before. We're all liars. Because I haven't been taught to be a liar. Really? See, here's what we do. We, we put lying in different categories. You ever notice that? We put lying in different categories. We'll, we'll, we'll say there's a little white lies. You know, and then you know, there's the real big whoppers. Then there's the lies of convenience. Oh, it's so-and-so. Tell them I'm not here. You know, so there's lies of convenience. And, you know, there, there's just different types of lies. There's, there's lies that you tell to, quote, protect people so that you don't hurt them. Okay, so, so everybody recognize we all lie? Okay, so here's what he's saying now. I'm not just to lay aside my attitudes of doing harm to people. Let me just stop for a moment. You may never do harm to them physically, but Jesus said just the fact that you thought it in your heart, you did it. Remember? If you hate someone, you have murdered them. Okay, and so here's the thing. Lying, even if it's just a teeny white lie, is a lie. And I notice, notice what he says here. All deceit. So he's encompassing everything. Let's go on now. And then he talks about hypocrisy. You and I are to lay aside of her hypocrisy. What's the number one complaint about the church? It's filled with what? Hypocrites. They're right. Let's admit it. We profess one thing and live another. And they see right through it. So when he calls us to a standard of holiness, he's saying to us, you guys need to lay aside your hypocrisy. Lay it aside. Now, let me give you a definition of hypocrisy because you may think, well, I'm okay. Jesus, when he used the word about hypocrite, it's interesting, he used the word that was used in the theater culture of his day, a Greek word. The writer uses a Greek word that reflects the theater culture of his day. And it means to wear a false mask. So if you remember, how many of you remember from high school studying about Greek theater and you learned that, that instead of just the actor up there, they would wear a mask as part of their theater? How many of you remember that, okay? I'm, I'm taking you back to painful memories of high school or school, okay? So here you go. You, you remember that they wore a mask. And see, that they were pretending to be somebody else with that mask on. So what he's talking about here, a hypocrite is an actor. And the reality is, is we're all hypocrites, aren't we? Because we put on a false face with everyone. So, for instance, you may have been grumping and griping before you got here, and as soon as you walked in the door, everything was sweet as pie. What's that? Hypocrisy. Acting. And he says, if I'm going to follow the standard of God's holiness, I need to be consistent in my life. So I need to lay aside my hypocrisy. Look again, verse, verse 1 there. And envy. Boy, do we suffer from this one. Don't we suffer from this one? Where we're envious of others? Look, the whole class warfare thing is based on envy. Well, he's, he shouldn't have all that money. I should have that money. Or keeping up with the Joneses. You ever remember that? You know, where you, you, your neighbor got a new whatever, now you got to have a new whatever. Or have you noticed, you may not be that overt with it. It may be simply like this. You're driving along in a car, and it's okay. You maybe have to repair it every now and then. But somebody else, maybe somebody here in the church, or somebody in your neighborhood gets a new car or a new truck, and all of a sudden, you find yourself not satisfied with the car that you have, even though it's paid for. And all of a sudden, now you've got to have, what? A new car. And, and what is that? 
Envy, the Bible also describes it as covetousness. So he's saying, if I'm going to follow that standard, I need to lay that aside. Let's go on. One more here there. And he says, all evil speaking. Again, every one of us suffers from this. You know, a great verse you can go to is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let me read it to you. The Apostle Paul tells us there, concerning our speech, that my words need to be words of not life, not death. And here's what he says. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So I need to speak in such a way to people that it's going to impart edification. It's going to build them up, not tear them down. Let me ask you a question. So when I talk about evil speaking, I'm talking about not just cursing, because a lot of you don't curse. probably haven't had a curse word come out of your mouth in a long time unless somebody hits you or you hit yourself. The whole thing of evil speaking is, for instance, belittling people. Like, for instance, you walk right drive downtown and you say, oh, well, look at that, there's some porch monkeys there. Meaning folks who just hang out on the porch all day long. Or you've got an attitude towards somebody because of their social economic status, so you always talk about reliefers. Or maybe skaters, those are the kids who hang around downtown here who've got skateboards and their hair looks different than what you like. That all is under the definition of evil speaking because what you are saying, let me just go ahead and say it, is not building up anybody, it's tearing down. Period. So, okay, let's just stop for a moment. So we've got several things there. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and our evil tongues. How are we doing? Not so good. I'm getting older, I can't hear anymore. Not so good, right? Okay, now here's the point, though. Peter is saying to you and I, because we're called to be holy, we must rid ourselves of that behavior. We must rid ourselves of that behavior. Period. You know, I, I'm at the point now where, you know, if you're around me and you want to talk about somebody, I don't want to talk about anybody anymore. Just to be honest with you, God has convicted me to the point where I don't want to hear about this group or that group or this group. I, you know, it, yesterday I was with a group of folks and they were talking about the president and all that. You know what? I may not have voted for him, but he's still the president. I don't want to hear it anymore. Because God called me to be holy. And what's it, going to, what's it to me to be tearing down somebody that I can't do anything about? The majority of Americans elected him in. You understand what I'm saying? I can pray for him. I'm called to pray for him. I'm not called to tear him down. And so I'm at the point now where it's like I don't have time for that. I have time to focus on me and my walk with Jesus and being what he wants me to be because there are people around me going to hell. And all that other stuff is just a distraction. So I, I need this. I need George personally has been convicted by this verse because it's saying to me, you know what, George, you're called beholder. Lay aside your attitudes, lay aside your speaking. Be the person God called you to be. And that's true for all of us here. Now you can make excuses, you can say whatever, you can be angry at me. Or just blow but it doesn't take away what my word says. And that's the standard by which we measure our lives. That's the standard. Let's go on now. Here's what he's saying then. So, if I'm going to break with sin, I've got to... You know what? Here's the thing. You've got to replace sin with something in your life. Because we desire sin. I've got to replace it with something. So, here's what he's saying. We are to desire God's Word so that we can grow. Listen. Over the last four weeks now, I have, we've, 
as we did the Be the Church study, I've heard a lot of people telling me that they have gotten back into the Word. And we even had a testimony last Sunday during, during our communion time with one young lady who was reading the Word, reading the Word, and then she got away to it. And she realized how much she had missed by getting out of the Word. And you and I have to get back into the Word of God and read it and let it sink into our lives and let God speak to us. And so I've got to apologize to you. You say, you've got to apologize to me. Yeah. I did a lot of you in this service. I wasn't intentional because I wanted you to read the Word of God, but so for instance, the Bible reading cards that are out there, what I gave you was a goal to accomplish was to read the Word in one year. And what happened was the goal superseded the reason for doing it. You began to read it in one year without internalizing it. Some of you became defeated by it, so you just quit altogether. When rather, the thing is, if it takes you ten years to read through the Bible because you're reading through it slowly and praying your way through it, then let it be ten years. But read what you're reading so that it becomes a part of your life and crave it. It's like, I've got to be in the Word today because it's the nourishment for my life. God, speak to me. And what we've done is we've reduced it, we've reduced it down to a routine. And I, I apologize. I, you know what? I, I had the best intentions, but even best intentions don't work out right, do they? And a lot of you have been defeated by it, and you shouldn't be. So just read through it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to produce a whole new Bible reading guide. I'll have it here in a couple of months, and as soon as I get it completed, where I'm not telling you to read certain things. I'm just going to have things where you check off that you read through it, but I'm going to give you certain books to read first to guide you in your walk with God and to understand what you're reading. Not, oh, I've got to make it through this in a year. No, it takes you 20 years. You're growing, though, because you're craving. We're desire God's Word. You want to grow. Some of you here, you're not growing. You're the same. First of all, if you come to a place where you think you've arrived, you've got a problem. If you think you have arrived with your spiritual life, you've got a problem. Every one of us is growing until we go to be with Jesus. So here's the thing. You have got to be seeking to grow in your relationship with Him step by step by step. So the way to do it is not by osmosis. Just let me be in here and just let me soak it in, Jesus. It's got to be by you reading it and saying, okay, Lord, how do I apply that to my life today? What's the lesson in this passage? What are you showing me? And applying it to your life. That's reality. That's reality. So here's the thing. So he says, desire it. And see, here's the thing. The desire for God's Word comes with having experienced salvation. So this is a good point here. Look at what he's saying here, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. See, if you have tasted salvation, the graciousness of God, the grace of God in your life, it's going to exhibit in your life a desire to hear from Him. So let me just stop for a moment. And I like what I'm going to say, but I need to because statistics show that more than half of our churches, people don't know Jesus. And they're deceived themselves into thinking they're okay. So if you're living your Christian life and you have no desire to read his word, you better be scared. Because it's reflective of one of two things. Number one, it may be reflective that you have died spiritually and you need revived. You have died spiritually and you need revived. Or number two, you never experienced life in the first place. You never were saved. You just prayed a prayer. You just got baptized. You just went to church all your life. And so he's saying here that the desire to read his word needs to come from because you've experienced salvation. 
So if you're in that first category where you're spiritually dead, you need to think back on the reality of what his salvation was for you. That he has saved you, and that he saved you in spite of you. You deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. And the reality is, is because of his salvation, Lord, you've been so gracious to me, I want to know more about you. And I need the word to know more about Jesus. Not more theology. In fact, I'll, let me give you a personal testimony. 1993, I graduated from seminary. And God was gracious with me. Before he allowed me to go into ministry, he let me spend three summers working for my father-in-law on a Christmas tree field. And that was good because I had to go through the seminary thaw. What does that mean? Well, I had just spent numerous years studying the Bible analytically and and just and every time I would read, I'd say, oh, I wonder what the viewpoint on this is. I wonder what the doctrine of this is. I wonder what this is. I wonder what that is. And it was distracting me from God communicating to me personally. In fact, there was a 14th century monk by the name of Thomas Akempis who made a who, uh, who said this, that you could walk through the forest and miss the trees because you're examining the stumps. And that was what I was doing. I was missing the word because I was examining stumps. There's nothing wrong with examining stumps, but you can't do it all the time and grow. See, here's the thing. The word of God is life. It'll bring life to you, but you've got to desire it. You've got to want it. And see, we can get into the rut of our spiritual lives. See, even like the Bible reading card, it can become so routine. Just notice it. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you use the Bible reading card, if you were to do this week, or even if you use the daily bread or whatever, and you read the passage there, two hours later, are you thinking about, what did I read today? I can't remember. You remember that TV show you watched the night before. Because you're telling your friends about it. Did you see that game? Boy, wasn't that a great whatever he did? But when it came to reading the Word of God, you can't even remember two hours ago what was what you just read. But you know you got through the card. You know you got through the reading plan. You know you did your daily bread. I'm okay with you, Jesus. Something's missing. Something's missing. I'm not okay, Jesus. I wasn't listening to you today. I'm having this thing with my with my kids right now, you know. Tell them something. Oh, I didn't hear you. I didn't catch it all. No, no, you weren't listening. You weren't. How many of you have that issue? We all do, right? Okay. You weren't listening. You know what I'm saying? Just because you weren't listening does not mean the command was not there. So, you know, so listen. And that's the thing is we're not listening to God. Well, let's go on now. He's going to talk about abiding in Christ now. Look with me at verse 4 to 6. Come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him, will by no means be put to shame. Okay, so let's look here. Even though we are rejected by men, go to Christ who views us as precious. This is a difficult one because, you know, we've lived in a, we lived in a nation where there's been some standard of acceptance for believers. 
even though the culture may not have been completely Christian, and most of the, most of the people in the United States are not believers, we have accepted a standard in which it was okay to be a Christian. Now that is changing. I don't know if you're aware of it. It is changing, and it is changing rapidly. And we're having a hard time with it. And our rugged individualism says we need to fight it. Forgetting that Jesus said, if you call on my name, you'll suffer. We're not used to suffering. But here's what Peter is saying, because Peter's addressing a group of people who are suffering, who are being rejected, and this is a good passage for you and I to reflect upon in the future, because it's going to get worse. Accept it. It's our lot in life. I don't accept that. Jesus said, you follow him, you'll suffer. Period. It's our lot in life. So here's what he's saying. Even though we are rejected by men, he didn't say fight. He said, go to Christ who views you as precious. I go to Jesus who views me as precious, as acceptable in his sight, even though men reject me. In fact, the fact of the matter is, they're going to reject you because their eyes are blinded by who? Satan. And what does Satan think about God and his saints? He loves them? No, he hates them. So, obviously the people who are blinded by him are going to what? Yeah, hate you. That's reality. So let's go on. Peter tells us that we are stones being built into the church. You individually are a stone being built into the church. Now you say, you mean into this church? Well, you can take it that way, but it's really talking about the universal church, which is the body of Christ. You and I are part of the body of Jesus Christ, and we are a stone that's being built into his body, to the church. And, and let me just stop for a moment. The universal church of Christ is not Baptist, although there will be Baptists there. There will be Presbyterians. There will be denominations you don't even know the name of because they're around the world. And the fact is, is we're all being built into one body, which is Jesus is the head of. Peter tells us that we are now priests who serve in the church. Every one of you here is a priest. Now, that may be hard for some of you, especially if you have a Roman Catholic background, because you view priests as a select group. But the fact of the matter is, is every one of you is a priest before God. You minister before Him. He communicates with you. He doesn't communicate through me to you. I know there are some Christian groups who believe that, even Protestant groups who believe that the word is spoken through the pastor to you, that's wrong. God doesn't need no middleman. Aren't you glad for that? He can speak directly to you through his word. So, you and I are priests. Isn't that here, a wonderful thing? You came in here all downtrodden today, wondering, you just thought, man, I'm worthless, and then you find out you're a priest. And here, Peter goes on later and talks about you being a royal priesthood. So, you're a king, too, or a queen. Now, here's the thing. We're, we're a royal priesthood. Let's go on. The basis for our part in the church is Christ, who is our salvation. Listen, the reason why you're in the church has nothing to do with you. It has to do with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? But I, I mean, if you really were reflective for a moment, if you could remove yourself from your pride, we all have pride, and if you really examine your life in light of what Jesus sees without salvation, you would recognize that every one of us here, including myself, 
and not able to stand before a holy God. But every one of us here has sinned and are worthy of death. Eternal death. Period. Every one of us. See, that's a humbling thing to me. So, so I, can't, I can't point a finger at people and say, well, you know, because I got three pointing right back at me. Uh, you know, so the basis for my part of the church isn't me, it's Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? If I can be honest with you, when you look at his standard, there's no way you could ever get in. Sort of like, you know, I grew up in the military, and part of my life I actually lived up Fort Bragg. What's that Fort Bragg, everybody? The Green Berets. And you see guys walking around, and you know what? They just don't let anybody become a Green Beret. Period. You've got to reach a certain standard to become a Green Beret. Why? Because of the stuff they do. They do superhuman stuff. And actually, it's interesting. I read something recently. Most of the guys who are in a Green Beret have college educations. So they're not dummies. They're smart. Special Forces guys, they're something else. And then even beyond them, they have other type of elite units. Every one of them has a standard. So Joe Schmo, who's overweight, George Cannon, is not going to show up and say, I want to be a Green Beret. They're going to say, you look like a cook. You know, that, that's what they're going to say. You know, the point is, you, so we understand that there are standards, right? You understand that in baseball, you know, everybody's playing Little League now. Very few of them will ever make it to the pros. Very few. You understand that all the kids who are playing in college, you don't see all the superstars that are in college football making it to the pros. You notice that? We live with standards. Now, here's what I'm trying to say to you. God has a standard, and none of us meet it on our own. But he gave us Jesus. He's our standard. Isn't that awesome? Man, isn't that wonderful? Man, that makes me feel good, you know, because I know who I am. So, here, look at the rejection, though. He's going to reflect on the rejection of this by unbelievers. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now here, I want you to see what's going on here. First of all, a believer views Christ as precious and highly esteemed. So if you're a Christian, you're going to view Jesus as something that is more precious than anything. He is the one who saved you and gave you life. He's with you each and every day. He brings you comfort in the midst of your comfortlessness. He gives you hope in the midst of your hopelessness. He provides for you. He's there for you. So, Jesus is precious. But then he goes on and says, here's what happens. The unbeliever rejects and does not accept Jesus. Have you noticed that? People use Jesus as a swear word. People, people view Jesus as some tragic figure from history. People view Jesus as just one of many teachers. People don't even believe that Jesus exists. And there are few, but there are a few out there that don't. And so, unbelievers reject and do not accept Jesus. Now, here's the reason why. Here's their, here's, because of sin, all disobedient unbelievers are destined to eternal condemnation. 
Here's what he, he's making the third point here. An unbeliever, because of their sin, is headed to hell. I'm going to say that again. An unbeliever, because of their sin, is headed to hell. Let me put it to you this way. Why am I saying this? Because this has got to grip us, because we're in a sleep. We're asleep. I'll make it personal so that you understand what I'm talking about, but then you make it personal to yourself. My neighbors who don't know Jesus are going to hell. My family who don't know Jesus are going to hell, and I will never see them again when they die. I've already had family members die without Jesus. I will never see them again. People that I work with who don't know Jesus are going to hell. My friends, and I have a few, who don't know Jesus are going to hell. Now, I can admit to you that as time goes on, my heart can grow cold to that fact. Oh, yeah, they need Jesus. Pray for them. But I grow cold to the fact that people around me who do not know Christ, or who even profess to know Christ but don't really know Him, are headed to hell. I can grow cold to that fact, and it never gripped me. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we are not gripped by the reality that people around us are going to hell. Period. We are not gripped. Because if we were gripped by it, we would pray for them and seek opportunities to show them differently. But the fact is, is we don't. Anything, we're mad. That neighbor's cat uses my garden for his bathroom. He did this, he did that. I can't complain about cats anymore. I have two now. Amazing how they're changing. But I used to. I used to complain about neighbor's cats coming in. We put rubber snakes in there and everything. Trying to get rid of them. They just laugh at us. But see, I was more concerned about rubber snakes and, and, and cats using my garden than I were about the fact that my neighbor was going to hell. Here's the reality. People who don't know Jesus are going to hell. Is that with us? It should. Here's the other thing. Let's go on. The blessings as the people of God. So he's going to, we're going to spend the last two verses here talking about the blessings for you and I as the people of God. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I've already told you about that. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy. Okay, so let's look at this. Just three points. Christians have become a special people of God by the act of his will. You did not make yourself this. He did it. Your majesty. 
your eminence. That's who you are. Now, the rest of the world may look at you and say, you're a crazy nut. But you are a royal priest, a chosen generation. And notice how he describes you. A people who were not his people, who are his people now. It was an act of his will. Aren't you glad he chose you? Isn't that awesome? Let's go on here. The other thing I want you to see there is, we are called to proclaim the glory of God who called us out of glory. Your reason for existence is to glorify God. In fact, the first question of the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All men will glorify God, period. You say an unsaved person will glorify God? Yes, God is glorified in His punishment because God is just. But you and I, because we are believers, have the choice to glorify Him with our lives right now. So are you glorifying God with your life? That's a, You know, we talked about earlier, verse 1, about laying aside all that stuff because of holiness. Here's how you lay it aside. You, before you speak, you say, am I going to glorify God with what I'm about to say? Am I going to glorify God with my attitude? Am I going to glorify God with the way I'm living my life? Boy, that'll straighten you up quick, won't it? Okay, let's go on. Peter makes the point that we who have no hope are now a people of hope. Look, I don't care how dark the world gets, and the world may get even darker. I just had a conversation with somebody I was in their room, and I noticed they had a book there, The Coming Economic Earthquake by Larry Burkett. It was written in the late 80s, describing what was supposed to happen in 1999. He was 20 years too late. Everything he described in that book actually took place now. And the reality is, when he brought that book out, people thought he was nuts. So if he's right, we're, we're, times are going to get darker financially. And we need to be aware of that. But you say, oh man, but yeah, you know what? Our hope isn't in banks. Our hope isn't in administrations. Our hope isn't in that. Even if things were going great, our hope isn't in that. Our hope is in Jesus. Period. That's where your hope's got to be. And so here we are. We are now a people of hope. So smile. Some of the most gloomiest people I know are Christians. They're so miserable. There's no reason to be miserable. Life may be handing you a raw deal, but I'm going to be honest with you. You've got hope because after this life, you have eternal life. Actually, eternal life begins now, doesn't it? Be a people of hope. Okay, let's close our time. Let's get ready for the morning worship service.